your heart beat pretty fast when you um, come upon uh, a grizzly bear that you never realized how massive they are. They're sort of um, sort of exhaling, and no matter the temperature, there's steam coming out of their mouth. Hello, and welcome back to the Field Reports podcast. This episode, we have Ben Danza, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan. Thanks for being on the show. How do you pronounce your surname? Just to clarify. It's just like uh, a dancer. Dancer. So, so T is yeah. silent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, okay. So you take uh, an integrative approach towards your research, right? So could you briefly explain what you work on? Yes. So I'm interested in how um, animals adapt to changing environments. And so thinking about sort of temporal or spatial variation in um, food resources or competition or predators and thinking about how they adjust their behavior or life history traits um, to cope with those altered environments or fluctuating environments. And then the integrative aspect comes in is because we're sort of thinking about the organism in context of its natural history. So we're measuring behavioral traits, life history traits, then there's also a, a sincere sort of interest in understanding the physiological, and especially endocrine mechanisms that might trigger those behavioral or life history changes or plasticity and behavioral life history traits. Great. So, my, so my integrative, I guess, it's, it's thinking about um, you have behavioral traits, um, life history traits in terms of um, how they reproduce or survive, um, how fast they grow. And then asking what um, mechanisms might trigger those those sort of changes. And and you do this. Uh, you ask these questions on various study systems. So what are your uh, systems? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. One other feature of sort of this approach is thinking about that many other people do as well is trying to um, really understand the ecology or the natural history of the study species. So maybe tailoring their research questions towards those um, study systems. So the, the study systems that are the primary sort of focus right now are North American red squirrels on the Yukon and Canada, and then um, prairie bulls in Ohio, and mice in Michigan. And then I also sort of continue to work on um, studies of meerkats in South Africa. Cool. So, so most of it is uh, field research, is it? If I'm not wrong. Yeah, there's there's a lot of field research, and then there's a, a, a fair amount of um, lab lab work when it comes to analyzing samples when we return from the field with those samples. But but a lot of it is field work, yeah. Okay, so I want to know more about uh, these projects uh, on squirrels and meerkats later. Uh, but before that, um, I just wanted to ask you what got you interested in in the work that you're doing currently. Um, I think that. I mean, I guess you can answer it two ways, is the, the way about what got you interested in biology, um, first of all. And, and um, so in my case, it would be, you know, really interested in understanding um, uh, explorers. And so thinking about, you know, explorers that went to the Arctic or Antarctica um, or other countries, um, Africa, and, you know, they went to these places um, and reported on them, and in the case of Antarctica, you know, they were the first ones to these locations, and so it was really an interesting sort of adventure, and I kind of think that 
um, science is sort of like an adventure where most places these days have already been uh, discovered or reported on, um, where science represents this opportunity to do really interesting discoveries, things that people have never done before or never thought of this way before. Um, so that's why I really liked science in general. It's kind of what got me hooked. Um, and then for the other study systems, um, so I'm lucky to say that you know I have collaborators on the project that have um, um, either start, already started the projects that I work on or have done a lot of the, the legwork, made the infrastructure available, and so it provided these opportunities. And so like anything in science, it's um, uh, collaborations between other people that have already uh, established the projects. And, and more recently, what I've done is tried to start these other projects in prairie voles and, and mice, and that involves a whole new set of challenges in terms of setting, um, setting them up um, and learning how to get a long-term data study going, which is really challenging. Um, there was a recent sort of conference in uh, Canada called Wildlife 70, and in the conference they sort of congratulate each other for doing these long-term projects on um, species like red squirrels or horses um, or sheep um, or mountain goats and all these really interesting animals. But then there's this whole other fraction of people that have tried to start long-term studies like that, and they've um, failed for a variety of different um, reasons. And so starting to set up new projects has been you know, eye-opening in terms of understanding the challenges that, that are faced by people getting these projects going. But again, it's sort of um, capitalizing on all the, the friendliness and collaboration that other people that have worked on these animals previously um, can provide. So what are some of the challenges that you've faced in your long-term research? I think the biggest one is, um, is, is one that all of us face, and that's just funding. Um, so if you, you, know, if you work on um, animals that are in your backyard, then that could be a great long-term study project because you potentially don't need that much money to track them, handle them, um, record basic data, or observe them. Um, but for other species, so like red squirrels are... Uh, more or less in the middle of nowhere, and it's it's time consuming to get there. Um, so it requires a lot of money, and it requires a lot of money to pay people to collect a lot of the data. Um, there's a lot of uh, work, so it's it's kind of the the same sort of problems that we're all, we're all facing. Um, but for long term projects, it's even bigger because you know you have one year of data collection. You really need every year of data collection, and you can't afford to miss it. Yeah. And in some of our, some of our funding cycles, it's um, you might miss a couple years of funding. So it's hard to sort of keep that data collection, that stream of data coming in. The other ones are, um, I mean, the other ones are sort of basic. Where do you do the long-term study? Um, you have to find locations for it that are suitable for your scientific goals. Um, and then you also have to find people that are willing to collaborate with you. And so that could be like um, lands that are owned by the, in the U.S., the state or the federal government. Um, but it could be private landowners as well. So we're often trying to do um, activities that sort of make sure we can have those collaborations between private landowners and work on their land, and they understand science. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you have any anecdotes of your uh, from your field work that you'd like to share with us? Um, I so I was saying that I think the best part of field work, and especially in remote places, is sort of devising. Um, uh, solutions to problems that you didn't expect that you're going to encounter. Uh, so in, in many of the cases, you know, you have to learn skills that you never thought you would have to use in field work. So, for example, 
you know, we did these experiments where we tried to manipulate the perception of population density in red squirrels. And so I spent, um, you know, huge amounts of time in my life trying to devise um, how much battery power I needed, what speakers I should use, and then how I was going to modify the specific units myself um, in order for them to get uh, running to longer. So, you know, we have in the Yukon this bin of like thousands of mp3 players or hundreds of mp3 players that we use to manipulate these things and so you never really know what to expect that you're gonna uh, encounter and i think the other part of field work is sort of uh everyday mishaps or um, events like that that happen um and i you know i think the one that i sort of orient to towards most is the encountering of wildlife um or encountering of, of humans that when you're doing um, field work yeah. And while I don't have, have any uh, specific sort of, uh, um, like, adverse encounters, you know, the, the, in the Yukon there's a lot of grizzly and black bears um, and moose and other animals like that, and it's a really unique place to work. And um, the first time you sort of see a grizzly bear um, right in front of you, you sort of realize this isn't the zoo anymore, and it's just a very unusual, um, very unusual experience. Yeah. So have, have you have you ever had like really close encounters with any such wild animals? Yeah, so we encounter um, so we encounter black and grizzly bears quite frequently, and um, they're often you know where we walk through the forest trapping our squirrels, and then we encounter them quite frequently, or they encounter us. And usually, what happens is that they just turn around and, and run away. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's more uh, curiosity and uh, interest in understanding who we are and what we're doing. Um, and it's never been antagon antagonistic, uh, but um, it is, it is, you know, it gets your heart beating pretty fast when you um, come upon um, a grizzly bear that you, know, you never realized how massive they are. And they're sort of, um, sort of exhaling, and no matter the temperature, you know, there's steam coming out of their mouth. And, um One of the, I think one of the more um, alarming interests one time was, um, so when you, when you are in the Yukon in the winter time and you're walking around on snowshoes, you're making these um, snowshoe trails and it's really, really hard work. And so a lot of people, like when we um, are hiring people, um, we talk about, you know, are you good at snowshoeing? Most of them say, yes, uh, I've been on groomed trails and snowshoeing on groomed trails is fine, but then when you have to make these snowshoe trails and four feet of snow or whatever it's it's really difficult so you make these snowshoe trails and what's interesting is that most often the animals um, start to use your snowshoe trails and so what happens is you go in these circles when you're trapping squirrels you know you set one trap you set the next one you set the next one and then eventually you make your way back and check those traps in order and um, what can happen when the bears wake up in the springtime is that the first thing that they seem to use is the snowshoe trails that we've made. So there are, there are times where you're walking around and you're snowshoeing, and then you realize that, oh, there was a bear walking immediately behind me um, as I sort of passed through this, through this area, and I just came, you know, just missed it or something. Um, so those are, those are interesting encounters um, in the Yukon. And then the other ones, um, you know, the other ones are often just encountering humans and trying to explain what you're doing and why you're doing the work. And those have always, in my case, been been very positive. Suppose if, if a bear tries to attack you, what's your escape strategy? Um, Some people say, different people say different things, but, but I would like to know what 
you would do. Yeah. I mean, as a disclaimer, I'm not an expert and I don't, and um, I, I hate to give advice um, because I you know, don't have any great expertise compared to other people in this field. Um, but I mean, it, so, you know, supposedly it depends on the type of bear it is. So if a black bear is attacking you, then you're supposed to fight back because they're trying to kill you. Um, whereas if a grizzly bear attacks you, um, you were supposed to play dead because it might be a young male who's sort of taking out um, teenage aggression, um, or it might be a sow that's trying to protect her um, cubs. And so playing dead might be able to increase those means. Um, in the cases where you know I've happened upon bears and these um, opportunities, uh, almost every single time I've just sort of turned around and walked directly away. Um, there's been other times where you sort of um, stand there and, and look at each other and not really know what to do. Um, but often it's just quickly walking away and I've often focused on, you know, where are there trees that I can climb and for bears, they can easily climb those trees faster than we can. Um, but, uh, it's still an attractive possibility. So I would say a black bear, you, uh, um, try to fight back and a grizzly bear, you play dead, but <laughs> it's better to, it's better to, uh, um, so I guess not be found. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so could you could you describe um, what a typical day is for you during your uh, doing your field work? Yeah, it depends on the um, depends on the, the study site or the species, but um, most often it begins very early. Um, they're not birds, so it doesn't mean that early, but it means fairly early. Um, and in the Yukon, uh, we're working in the winter time, especially, so it means you know, waking up and um, if you're sleeping outside in a sleeping bag, you have to sort of uncurl out of this warm sleeping bag into the really uh, cold depths of winter. And then making a, a wood stove fire, uh, making coffee and, and getting the place warmed up again. Um, and then what we're doing on for squirrels is we're trapping them. So we're setting traps very early in the morning. And then we leave them in the traps for about an hour and a half maximum, usually shorter than that. We check the traps and we handle them. And we handle them in these sort of specific canvas bags. And then we typically do that for like five hours or so. And then the other part of our, um, the other part of the squirrel stuff is to um, get the babies out of their nest. So we do telemetry, just basic radio telemetry in the afternoon to find where females have their nest. And then we take, take the babies out of the nest for a few minutes to sort of weigh them, take a tissue sample for paternity analyses. Um, and then we sex them, determine their sex, and then we put them back in the nest and might record the female's um, behavior. On other, the other projects, you know, say for the deer cat project, um, you have to be out there before they wake up in the morning, um, before they come out of their sleeping burrows. So in the sort of austral uh, summer, um, that would be whatever, like mid-December coming out um, at 4 o'clock in the morning and sitting there in the morning um, and waiting for them to come above ground. And they sort of, the first one pokes its head out um, and then the rest of them start to sort of come out of the burrow. And it's just really beautiful um, event because they all come out and they all stand in the sun and warm themselves up and you have all these different birds calling. Um, the sun's rising. It's a really, you know, really cool um, thing to have happen. And then what you do is you spend the next four hours or so um, following the meerkats around and recording all of their, you know, really interesting sometimes, but can also be really challenging to stay focused because not much can happen in some, in some days. Um, the, other, the other species are fairly easy. 
because you're just setting traps at nighttime or in the morning and then you're checking them and then you're taking um, tissue samples, figuring out who they are, and in some cases we're collecting um, tissues or other, uh, other features like that. So the meerkats and the squirrels are a little bit more um, intimate because you get to know the animals and you get to sort of understand what they're doing, whereas the prairie voles and the squirrels, or, sorry, prairie voles and the mice are more anonymous, I guess. So could you, could you tell us a bit more uh, in detail about what you actually um, are trying to answer through your work on red squirrels and, and meerkats? Yeah, so the, the, the work on meerkats, um, I'll start with the first, is, is focused on understanding how um, developmental conditions that are experienced by offspring might alter their physiology and um, their behavior later in life. And there's sort of this specific focus on understanding, um, you know, there are different hypotheses about how cooperation has evolved. The meerkats are this highly social species that's a cooperative breeder. So there's a dominant male and dominant female that produce almost all or uh, all or all of the offspring um, in most cases. Um, and then there are a bunch of subordinates in the group, both males and females, that rarely or never reproduce, um, either over their entire lifetime or um, in their natal group they're born in. And there's, of course, a lot of interest in understanding how could this uh, type of behavior evolve where they're helping other individuals um, not reproducing on their own. And um, so there's, you know, explanations about kin selection, nepotism, um, inclusive fitness theory, mutualisms, reciprocity. Then there's this other one that's interesting about parental manipulation where, you know, say an allele that increases parental fitness at the expense of offspring fitness. In some cases, that can um, evolve. And what we're kind of interested in doing here is using that as a guiding theory um, in addition to stuff I've done previously, where we try to understand how environmental factors that induce stress in dominant females might alter the behavior of their offspring. So we're looking at how stress physiology um, is impacted by maternal state and how that causes changes in offspring cooperation. So what we found so far is um, uh, we found that um, increase or elevated stress in these social subordinate individuals will suppress their cooperative behavior in most cases. And then we're finding some instances where um, increased maternal stress um, alters the growth and development of their offspring, and that can change the cooperativeness of their offspring. So there's some evidence that what happens early to, uh, in, early in your life can cause these lifelong changes in your cooperative um, behavior. Well, I'm, I mean, I guess the guiding theme is about how there's individual differences in behavior and cooperation, and we're trying to understand some of the developmental or proximate mechanisms that underlie those. So how developmental experiences create that individual differences in cooperation, and what physiological or endocrine mechanisms create that those individual differences in cooperation. So are these um, subordinates related to the dominant ones? How and how does it change usually? Yeah. In most cases, they are, but in some cases, they're not. Um, they're not necessarily uh, related to them. So there are instances where the levels of relatedness between dominance and subordinates might be, um, you know, not like zero point five or equals zero point five. Could be something much lower than that. So how how does the inclusive fitness theory work in those cases? So when so they're not I, related, meerkats are interesting because uh, you know someone, a colleague of mine, told me recently that. Um, that works on cooperative breeders uh, said that meerkats are interesting because um, every time you do an experiment in them, you find the opposite of what every of what happens in every other species. So in meerkats, there's no there's no evidence that they um, 
discriminate against kin or non-kin, at least from older studies that were published some time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and the benefits that they seem to acquire is, you know, you can think about cooperation as sort of the cost of dispersing or the benefits of phylopatry. And so the benefits of phylopatry could be you're raising your inclusive fitness um, by helping um, close relatives. But the cost of, of dispersing in meerkats and other cooperative breeders that live in these desert environments might be very high. So um, for a meerkat, the best case scenario is for you to just wait it out. You increase your own chances of survival. You increase your access to food resources. And if you decide to disperse, the likelihood of you starting your own group, um, your own social group where you might have a chance to breed is really, really low. So it's better to just kind of wait it out and see what happens. Because maybe your mom or your grandma or your sister, whoever is the dominant female, might die. And then you might have the opportunity to inherit that breeding position and that social group that's there. Okay. Yeah. So could, could you tell us about the Red Squirrel project? So the Red Squirrels are um, um, interesting where so they experience these temporal fluctuations in food availability. And they're, they're a species that caches food. Um, so they have uh, their, their major food resource are the seeds from white spruce trees. And um, white spruce is a masking tree species, so they have these sort of pulses, huge pulses of food production, followed by no or few cones produced. And that seems to drive sort of population dynamics and, and, and sort of select patterns of natural selection on life history traits. So we kind of use that temporal fluctuations to understand um, uh, most of what happens in a red squirrel's life. And the questions that I'm really interested in understanding in that case is how mothers might prepare their offspring for specific types of environments. So what we also know in the red squirrels is that um, population densities fluctuate and they're territorial. So the number of those, those sites that they can, uh, the offspring are competing for is quite limited. So in some years, there might be you know, five squirrels competing for each um, vacant territory. In other years, it could be 30. In some years, it might be each squirrel that's produced has two vacant territories to its you know, choosing. So we try to look at how that competition for vacant territories might um, select for different types of characteristics and offspring. And what we see is that um, offspring that grow faster in high-density conditions tend to be more likely to survive to the following year. So there's sort of density-dependent selection on offspring postnatal growth rates. And what I was really interested in understanding and still sort of am is how um, mothers might um, alter the characteristics of their offspring or offspring alter the characteristics of their offspring by listening to maternal state. And what we see is that when moms think the world is dense, when they hear lots of sounds from conspecifics, it sort of triggers a stress, a stress response that alters the growth rates of their offspring and increases the growth rates of their offspring. And so what we see is that... Um, social cues of density induce a maternal effect on offspring postnatal growth. And it seems to be stress mediated. And what we're, we've been doing the last couple of years is trying to follow that forward and asking, um, you know, growth is this integrative trait that kind of reflects a whole bunch of different other aspects. And so what is it exactly that um, is making a squirrel that grows faster, better able to compete in these high density or highly competitive environments and then secondly, are there some costs to growing fast in terms of physiologically, um, do they senesce at a faster um, rate? Do they exhibit faster uh, or shorter lifespans? And then trying to understand how um, fast growth and elevated exposure to maternal stress might be adaptive and sort of adaptive in the short term, but pay some long-term cost in their lifespan. 
So how, how do you quantify or measure these physiological uh, parameters that you study? A lot of the stuff that we use are um, so-called like non-invasive measures of, of stress hormones and, or of other hormones. And that could involve taking fecal samples or hair samples and then quantifying how much of the metabolites of the hormones of interest are in there. Um, so for red squirrels and for meerkats and for all the study species that I work on, it's really easy to collect fecal samples because if they go into a trap, they usually defecate and then you have a fecal sample. They represent something like um, the last 12 hours, the average level of the hormone that you're interested in that was circulating in their blood. But other um, physiological measures, so those are kind of hormone measures, um, and, they're, and they're useful, but they also have lots of complications in the sense of if an animal's a meta a metabolic rate changes, they could um, have faster like gut passage time. And so that can influence their levels of hormones independent of how much hormones are actually in their blood. So we still take blood samples from animals um, to measure hormone levels, but also to measure other things like um, oxidative stress parameters. So as your um, body respires, it's producing these reactive oxygen species and individuals that have elevated energetic expenditure are expected to have elevated production of these reactive oxygen species that can be beneficial for like inflammatory responses but over the long term can damage um, proteins, fats, and DNA that could trigger some physiological change that accelerates senescence. For those oxidative stress measures, you have to have blood samples. Um, and to get um, these other measures of the telomeres, which are the ends of chromosomes, how long they are, these repetitive ends of chromosomes, you have to get the DNA from white blood cells, from blood samples, from other tissues. Yeah. Why only white blood cells? Why not? Why not like any other cells? You could, you could. So you could do, say, skin tissue, but you could also um, think about how fast those um, cells are proliferating. Mm -hmm. And the lymphocytes um, and leukocytes are, are proliferating at faster um, rates than the other skin cells. Mm -hmm. And so you have the opportunity to say, if you looked at the, the, the rate of change of telomeres in a sample like skin versus blood, um, it will often change with age in the blood cells. Um, or the lymphocytes, leukocytes, um, whereas the skin cells are not replicating fast enough to cause some um, rate of change with, with age. Okay. Uh, so uh, in addition to your research, you also do some outreach and science, uh, citizen science projects. Could you tell us a bit more about those activities? Yeah. So the, uh, um, I'd say the most, um, so there's two different kind of arms of it. And one is um, where... There are these, so there's different um, in, uh, community centers in Ann Arbor where we live that are located in low-income housing centers. And so there are after-school events where kids go when they're done with school. And here it's like 4 p.m. when people get, when you get done with school. And then there are um, a lot of kids go to these after-school daycare sort of things where it's not daycare because they're much older, but um, it's places where there are adults that, that can do activities with them, otherwise supervise them. And what we've been doing... Um, an organization that was started by a group of graduate students here in my department um, is offering these after-school science activities. Um, so we, we go there and we do fairly basic things, but we might also do, um, you know, take museum skins and skulls and talk about, like, how animals cope with seasonal changes in their environment. So coat color changes in mustelids um, or coat color changes in snowshoe hairs. And we talk about, you know, Bergman's rule in terms of changing 
um, of, of size of extremities. And so there's all these different um, tools that we can use from museum collection specimens. And we go there and we show them, uh, you know, here are the specimens. Here's what happens in terms of latitudinal gradients or um, seasonal changes. Um, and it's, can be, it can be a lot of um, fun. And, and there's always an interest in trying to, I guess, grow these into more depth. And so the ones that, um, that we've been, I've been kind of sketching out the plan for doing is doing more um, behavioral assays of animals and more of these like schoolyard phenology monitoring networks. So where, you know, we're surrounded by these areas that are sort of like wetland areas, but you have the opportunity to teach kids about, um, you know, when birds first show up to the area, when flowers start, first start coming up or when trees first start budding, when insects start um, calling our frogs stop calling. So there's always really neat opportunities to do that. That's kind of the direction that we're going, but um, it takes a lot of time and effort to, to get it going. Yeah. All right. Um, so my final question. Um, so if you had the power to change, what would you change about the way science is being practiced? Um, I mean, I guess I would, uh, first thing would be to uh, increase the, the benefits of collaboration or the perceived benefits and reduce the amount of ego that's in science. Um, um, so that would be an impossible thing to do, obviously. Um, but I think the funding structure is also, you know, depending upon where you are, it's, it seems very flawed. And um, I really like the Canadian system and having a lot of um, Canadian colleagues. Um, the Canadian system is very different. You know, it is still merit-based. Um, whereas the U.S. system claims to be idea-based, that regardless of your past record of accomplishment or achievement, they're funding the ideas, and that's supposed to make it very good. Whereas in the Canadian system, it is somewhat different. You know, it's still, it's still going to give you money based upon your record of productivity, how many people you've trained, but everybody is getting some money per year, and that can allow you to produce these long-term projects or allow you to do basic research science where, you know, you as a scientist develop some long-term goal, which where you want to get to eventually. And eventually, as you make your way through your career, you chip away at it and get to that question. Whereas in the U.S., it's this um, uh, sort of stochastic funding process where just like a paper is, you're, you're, the fate of your grant in your career and the research that you want to do is almost decided by two or three people. And given the way we know about peer review and the biases that are there, um, there, there are clear problems with that. And that's not to say that any of the funding schemes or granting, uh, granting agencies are innocent of any of those problems. But I just like the, um, the idea that each person in the system gets some amount of money. It's smaller amount of money per year or can be compared to the U.S., um, but it is uh, better for fostering these kind of long-term visions long-term goals, allows people to take chances, um, whereas in the U.S. system, it doesn't seem like that. So the personality aspects of science in terms of people being more collaborative and then just the, the usual complaints about the funding situation. Great. So is, yeah. there, is there anything else that you'd like to add or maybe advice for students or anything that you'd like to add? No, I mean, I guess uh, I just... I just always think it's important to do something that you really like to do and you really love to do rather than sort of um, focusing on what's the next biggest thing or the hottest thing um, in science. And, and, and 
that's kind of the approach that I take where, you know, there are other, there are other ways, pathways to success. Um, and, um, the pathway that I like that whether it's successful or not is one where I enjoy, really enjoy what I'm doing, doing the field work, collecting the field data and more thinking about how animals work in their environments. And so that's what I'm really passionate about. Um, and hopefully you know, students find something that they're passionate about, kind of follow that uh, trajectory so that they're feel so self-filled. All right. Th- yeah. th- thank you very much, Ben. It was, it was really nice talking to you. You too. Thank you. That was Ben Dancer. I'm your host, Ravindra, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out journalofanimalecology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.